My discipleship group and I have uh, been currently working through George Guthrie's uh, reading plan. Uh, he has a chronological reading plan. It's a guide, and it gives us daily readings and um, commentary that goes along with those readings. And uh, I was reading, it was week 17, day three, and the reading for that day included Psalm 133, 133. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm 133 as uh, we look at this beautiful yet short psalm on unity. And we use that text to shape our understanding of what unity is, but also then uh, I hope to, to glean from it and then take a tour through the New Testament to see uh, some, some examples of, of what that unity looked like uh, for new covenant believers, right? We look at the Psalms, and, uh, and we're going to dive into this text, uh, but that's in the Old Testament, so we're going to use that to kind of catapult us into the New Testament. Uh, so let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll jump into Psalm 133. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us what you have for us as it pertains to unity, uh, specifically unity in the local body of believers and as a church. Uh, God, it is our heart cry that you would unify us, but not just for the sake of unity, but for what you have given us unity uh, to, to achieve, to show, um, to teach. So God, would you teach us now on the topic of unity? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look together at Psalm 133, uh, verses 1 through 3. God's Word says this, A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord Yahweh has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. How good and pleasant. It is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. We are told at the beginning of this passage, it is a song of ascents, of David. Uh, and I want to just pose that to you. Did you know that the little writing that you catch before a psalm is just as much of Scripture as the psalm itself, as the beautiful words of poetry? And these little words are important because it tells us, one, who the author is, it's David, as well as what the occasion might be. It's a song of ascents, which means this was to be sung with Israelite pilgrims when they would gather in Jerusalem and abide in peace with one another. Harmony, unity. The people of Israel wouldn't always live up to this ideal, though. But there were times where they would practice mutual concern for one another. And their experience would be good and pleasant. One time this occurred in Israel's history was when David was established as king of Israel. Uh, he had spent time as king of Judah, but uh, had not been acknowledged as the king of all Israel. Uh, and that event may have been what inspired him to write this psalm. Uh, 
Um, to pair with Psalm 133, George Guthrie in our guide gave us this next reading. It's 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 say this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord Yahweh said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord Yahweh, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Isn't that interesting? And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. All of Israel is represented here, coming to David at Hebron to make him king. They, there is unity and single-mindedness as well as joy. Here we see an example of how the people of Israel acknowledged the same truths. David was a shepherd and a prince of the people. God was with him and produced great things through his leadership, and they made him king and rallied around him. And in doing so, they, they were mobilized to take Jerusalem, and they called it the city of David. Now, before you think David is making this all about him, look at what is recorded in the duplicate passage in 1 Chronicles 11 and 12. Credit is given to David's mighty men in 1 Chronicles 11, 10 through 11. Now, these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel to make him king. Pay attention to this. According to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. This is an account of David's mighty men. And then it goes on for two whole chapters, bragging, boasting on the men who humbly submitted to David and won Jerusalem for him. And it goes on and on. We're clued in that Israel isn't so much rallying around a man as they are rallying around the word of the Lord. Did you see that? It was God's will for David to become king and settle in Jerusalem. And the people were united in that motivation and that effort. With this example in mind, we return to Psalm 133. 
how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. In this verse, we find two truths about the unity that God has for us in, this, in light of this one verse. First, unity is something that can be morally good. Second, unity is something that can be experientially pleasant. Now, I use those words can be very intentionally. That not all unity, as it would appear, is morally good. Think about the atrocities that have been done as people rally around some type of cause. Not all unity can be experientially pleasant. We know that terrible things can happen. But we're talking about biblical unity. The unity that God has for us. And what we need to see just in observing this psalm is that it can be morally good. Experientially pleasant. We observe these truths in the first verse, and then they are illustrated for us in the second and the third. First, we are told that unity is like the precious oil on the head of Aaron and running down his beard onto his robes. Now, who is Aaron? Aaron is the high priest. Why does he have oil being poured on his head? Well, this is a, this is a part of the ritual, right, that prepares him as the high priest to enter into the holiest part of the tabernacle. Right, to show the, the, the cleansing power of the Lord, to prepare him to go where no other person can go and sprinkle blood of the lamb on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the community. And that this oil trickles down Aaron to his beard, off his beard onto his robe to show that it flows downward. Right? It starts with him, but it flows down to the rest of the community. And it's morally good. It's morally good, and that's because of what God has done to initiate that relationship with his people by way of the atonement in this process that Aaron goes through as the high priest. Then we see the second illustration, the dew of Hermon falls on the mountains of Zion. And this is an illustration of the pleasant nature of unity. The clouds above Mount Hermon produce dew that accumulates and runs down the mountain, providing moisture to the vegetation along the way. It refreshes and provides sustenance in a way that is pleasant to experience. It does so without bias or partiality. All can benefit from its pleasant nature. Our truths are illustrated for us in the oil of Aaron and the dew of Hermon, that unity is something that can be morally good. And unity is something that can be experientially pleasant. This is what Psalm 133 has to teach us about unity. But what about the rest of Scripture? Specifically the New Testament. How do believers in Christ pursue this unity that is morally good and experientially pleasant? So I'd like to give you three more statements that we can see in the New Testament. Three other passages about unity that can help us pursue biblical unity. I'm giving you them to you all at once so you know where we're headed. We're going to do something a little different tonight. I'm going to create margin for the Lord to speak to you directly through His Word. I'll give you some of the context of these passages, but I'm going to read them and give you time to think through them. Kind of like we did on the front lawn a couple weeks ago, giving you time to let the Word of God speak directly to you in your life as you apply it for yourself. 
And so we're going to work through these, creating a little bit of time to think through these, pray through these. I can show you so much of what I see, but I want the Lord to speak directly to you. So it's okay if you didn't have all those written down. We'll have them uh, pop back up later. Let's start with that first one. Biblical unity is divinely inspired. Where do we see this? Well, we see this in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Uh, to set this up, Jesus is in the middle of his high priestly prayer. Um, it's the prayer that's recorded in John. He's had dinner with his disciples and talked to them about what's going to happen. They're having a hard time wrestling with that. And then he enters into uh, a, a chapters long prayer that he has with God the Father. And in that, uh, he's really praying a lot for the disciples, but then he turns a corner and prays for the future disciples, the disciples that the disciples will make and the disciples after them and so on and so on. And he says this in his prayer to God the Father in John 17, verses 20 through 23. I want you to listen carefully so you can glean from it and let you spend some time reading it for yourself after I'm done. I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Spend some time reading over that for yourself. We'll have the slides run through a couple times just so you get it. Spend some time reading that, seeing how unity, biblical unity, is divinely inspired and what that means for your life now. Go ahead and do that. Jesus has a future mind, a mind for the future church in this prayer. Not just his 12, but who will come after. He has you in mind in this prayer. And the implications, if we miss this, and if we are not one as he and the Father are one, the world is robbed of a witness, aren't they? So that others would know that the Father sent the Son. That's what's at stake with our oneness, our unity. So I just pose the question to you, do the young adults of Memphis, Tennessee, outside of Bellevue, know that the Father has sent the Son because they have come face-to-face -face with a young adult from Bellevue. Seeing the way young adults of Bellevue have interacted with one another. They would know the gospel because of the way we love one another. What's at stake, if we miss it, is that the world is robbed of a witness. The good news is Jesus has prayed on our behalf. 
That's really good news. The second person of our triune God has prayed to the first person of our triune God, consulting our witness as we love one another. That's good news. Second, biblical unity is doctrinally rooted. Doctrinally rooted. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 4, as Nathan Irby read it so eloquently. And we see that biblical unity is doctrinally rooted. Now to set this one up, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, you'll remember the Apostle Paul used to be Saul, the persecutor, uh, who persecuted those in the early church out of zeal for God, and yet was met on the road uh, to Damascus with Jesus himself, who blinded him, sent him into Damascus, and he remained blind, and then the scales fell off his eyes when Ananias prayed over him, and he was converted to Christianity because of his coming face-to-face with Jesus. Years later, after much study and training and being raised up by other pastors and and apostles in Jerusalem, uh, he was then sent out of the church of Antioch to then go on a missionary journey all over the Mediterranean. One of those places that he went to was Ephesus. He raised up a church in Ephesus and Uh, sent Timothy uh, to pastor that church, his disciple that he had made. And then he's writing to the church in Ephesus, considering many different things that are are going on in the church. And then he comes to this this problem of unity. And we see it in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, what their unity is to be made of, what it's to look like. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6 say this. Listen carefully as you look to apply this to your life. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Take some time, read over this text. See how to apply it to your own life. Take some time to do that now. In this text, we see, one, what our unity should look like, what it can be described as, but also what has to be at the core of our unity, that is our doctrine. So let's go in the order of of what we see. First, he he calls himself a prisoner. and I just the, The thought that came to my mind is what's going on in Nigeria right now. I don't know if you're aware but hundreds of Christians are being killed every week in Nigeria for standing up for their faith. Think about Paul, where he was in prison for his faith, writing to the church in Ephesus. What would the Nigerian church say to our local body of believers here? If we were to show them the squabbles, the divisions in our own church, how would they react? I think they'd be brokenhearted. That 
there are ways in which we haven't been humble, gentle, or patient with one another. We can do better. I don't say that to guilt any of you. I just say that to encourage you. We can do better. We have the same gospel, the same grace. We have the same doctrine. And Paul's very clear to point this out because it is important that we aren't just unified for unity's sake. It's unity in the right things. In fact, it's unity in the, the things that need to be prioritized. One body, that's one body of believers, one spirit, one Holy Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. What's the hope we have? It's in one Lord, that's Jesus Christ. One faith, that we trust Jesus. One baptism, that's not talking about water, that's talking about the baptism of the Spirit. One God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. This is what we believe and what ties us together. It's our doctrinal beliefs about who God is and what he's done for us in the gospel. There's nothing more important. In fact, there's nothing more that, there's nothing that could unify us more than the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what that has done for us. So be encouraged. We have what it takes. If we are in the spirit, we have what it takes to be humble, to be gentle, towards one another, to be patient with one another as we're all in process trying to get this. What does it mean to be a Christian in a fallen world? What does it mean to be sold out for the cause of Christ? None of us, none of us have arrived. We're all a work in progress. And it starts with our doctrine, starts with the gospel. Third, biblical unity is deacon-supported. We're going to assess that out. We're going to talk about that. Biblical unity is deacon-supported. We see that in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. God's Word says this. Listen carefully as you apply it to your life. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. These are uh, Greek believers. And they rose against the Hebrews, those who are Jewish and now Christians. This is the early church. Why? Because of their widows being neglected and the daily distribution of food. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands, laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests came, became obedient to the faith. 
Real quick, some context. This is the early church. (laughs) This is the disciples who became apostles, raising up from among their congregation men who would be able to solve a problem in the church. Hey, the church has always had conflict since the beginning. But they weren't in despair. They looked for those who were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with faith to help and wisdom to help solve the problem in the church so that the ministry could continue. All right, there's your context. Spend some time reading over that for yourself and see what the Lord would have you to apply here. I don't want to say too much about this passage. It's going to be the passage we look at at life groups in this Sunday. And so I want to give our teachers plenty of material uh, to teach you. But I will say that this is kind of the origins of where we see the office of deacon uh, initiated and started, established in the early church. Uh, the word for deacon in the Greek is diakonos. And it's used 30 times in the New Testament. Yet only three of these are translated as the office of deacon. All the other times it is translated as servant and minister. So when I say that church biblical unity is deacon support, I'm talking about servant support. And I'm really not talking about the deacons of our church. I'm really talking about you. Those who are commissioned to serve, to minister to the needs of the church. And there are plenty of opportunities to serve and meet the needs of those in the church. In fact, you're going to hear about that Sunday. We're having a serve expo here at the church, a lesson on serving in the church. I would just prompt you now to begin to warm your heart towards what that may look like for you utilizing the gifts that the Spirit has given you by His grace, what opportunity would you give those gifts to thrive in meeting the needs of some of those in the church? When it comes to unity, it has to be servant-supported. It has to be something that we rally around together, just like we saw with King David and his mighty men. They rallied around together with the shared motivation of obeying the word of the Lord. And so here we are. We want to do the same thing that the church has been doing since the very beginning. Solving the problems, meeting the needs of those in the church. It's deacon supported. And this brings us to our main idea for the night. The biblical unity we are commended to pursue together is focused on the gospel. It has to be this. Biblical unity we are commended to pursue together is focused on the gospel. It is prioritized above all else. And just like in Psalm 133, it flows downward. The moral goodness, the experiential pleasant nature of this unity flows down from the gospel to us and those that we come into contact with. It is the gospel that unites us to God. It is the gospel that shapes our shared doctrine. It is the gospel that motivates us to serve one another. We must be focused on the gospel if we have any chance of experiencing biblical unity. How good and pleasant It is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. 
it cannot be merely what we do that unites us. If It can't. If that's what it is, then we are no different from the fallen world. What is central to our unity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no compromising that. There's no locking harm, arms with others who don't believe that. It is what he has done that must unite us in the church. He has lived perfectly. He has lived the moral goodness that we seek. He has died an atoning death that our sin would be cleansed. He has been raised from the dead so that we can be eternally sustained and refreshed by His grace. If we want to pursue biblical unity, and I hope that we all do, then we start the same way Jesus did, by asking the Father so to make it so in prayer. We study sound doctrine given to us by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that esteems the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. We lock arms in service together to meet the needs of the church and then the community. And if we concentrate on these practices, then we will experience and appreciate the good and pleasant unity that the Lord has for us. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And I'm going to drop this pen. Think on these notes that you've made in these texts. What is required of you? Is it going to that brother in Christ that you've had a grudge with? Is it overlooking an offense, not even drawing attention to it? But just going to the Lord, asking Him to provide unity in a way that only He can in any situation. Concentrate on your relationships in the church. What does it look like for you to pursue unity rooted in sound doctrine, prayed for by the Father, practiced in service to one another? Some of you in this room tonight aren't united to God. Therefore, you cannot be united with the church. You must come through the one narrow gate that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So I want to invite you tonight, if that is you, if you're not united to God, if you have not been forgiven of your sins and reconciled to our God, I want to invite you to make that decision tonight. We'll have some, uh, some people off to the side here. If you want to talk with them tonight, you'll feel free to do that. If you just want them to pray for you, you have a need Maybe an area where you do not have unity that you would very much like it. Hey, they're there to help pray for you in that. If there's anything we can do to help one another take these steps towards unity rooted in the gospel, let's do it.